For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at City Church. Last week, we began a new sermon series on the Old Testament book named Esther. So I want to invite you uh, to take a Bible and to open up to Esther chapter 2. Now, uh, the worship guides, uh, you may have noticed, uh, are different. We've changed the the format, the size, and one thing we are no longer doing um, for space purposes is including the scripture reading. Um, But there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you that uh, you are welcome to use, and I believe that the I, don't, I do have my worship guide up here. I believe that the page number in those pew Bibles is listed, 400, page 410, if you're using one of the pew Bibles. Esther chapter 2. Esther, as we talked about last week, is considered to be one of the historical books in the Old Testament, and that is because it very specifically is telling history. We don't know who the author is. Uh, the book itself does not state does not tell us. Esther, as we also established last week, is a very unusual book. Why is that? Esther is unusual because there is no mention of God in this book, not one. No mention of God. Not once is God spoken of, not once does God make an appearance. What also makes Esther unusual, and I should also say frustrating, and we're going to begin to encounter that especially this morning, is that the author of Esther provides essentially no commentary on the moral decisions of characters. So we're we're never told specifically, this decision is immoral, this decision is moral. We're not given that kind of information. That's not the point of the book. And later in the sermon, we'll talk more about why that is. But it's unusual and frustrating. And so this has led scholars throughout history to have mixed reactions to the book of Esther. Some scholars have uh, basically just come out and said, I don't like this book. This book is weird. It's awkward. I don't know what to do with it. There's no mention of, of God here at all. How can this be a religious text? That's a question that we posed last week. How can a book like this, no mention of God, no commentary on morality, How can a book such as this be a religious text? And let's be more specific for our context. How can this be a Jewish or a Christian text? A Jewish or Christian religious text? How can it be? Well, I said this last week, and I'll keep reiterating it throughout the series. The absence of God in this book, the hiddenness of God, that was the title of last week's sermon, is actually the brilliance of the book. And I hope by the end of the series that you see this and you actually embrace the fact that God is not mentioned in this book in a sense, that you actually embrace the fact that there is relevance for your own life. There's application here because God seems to be hidden here in the book of Esther. Last week, chapter one, quick review for those of you who weren't here, or even if you were here, review is always helpful, right? Uh, We were introduced right off the bat to a king. That king's name is King Ahasuerus. Remember all these uh, tricky names that we encountered last week? That's going to continue somewhat into this chapter, so fun for me. Uh, Margie yesterday asked me, she wanted to clarify, when she did the welcome, was she supposed to read the call to worship? And I said no, and then she jokingly said, well, I didn't want to anyway. 
And then I said, you're not reading the call to worship because you're actually reading Esther 2 for me before the sermon. She wanted nothing to do with that. But chapter 1, we are introduced to the king, and um, he is a king who is very corrupt. He's very self-absorbed. And he's hosting all of these celebrations and these festivals in chapter 1. And the reason he's doing this is because he's wanting to gain loyalty and support for his military campaigns that he is planning in order to conquer Greece. And so while on the surface it might seem, wow, this king's pretty cool. He throws parties for his people. He had his own motives um, in mind here. And so at the end of one of these celebrations, uh, he's had a lot to drink. He calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, and she refuses to come. And so this happens in public at this celebration. And the king realizes that he can't have this. The king's advisors realize that they can't have this happening. And they quickly um, tell the king that if you allow this to go unpunished, then women all throughout this kingdom are going to begin to disobey their husbands. They're not going to listen to what their husbands say to them. And we are going to have a, a big problem on our hands. The king says, that's a brilliant idea. Let's do it. So Vashti is uh, banished from the kingdom. She loses her royal position as queen. She's banished from the kingdom. And that's where chapter one leaves off. Now, this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read chapter two as we go along. So let me right now pray for us, and then we will get into it. Father, we pause before you now to thank you for your word, because without your word, you would not only seem hidden to us, but you would in actuality be hidden. And so we're really grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We pray now that through this specific portion of your word, this book of Esther, this second chapter that we're looking at this morning, we pray that you would draw us into it, that we might uh, take a journey through the events of this chapter, that even though you are hidden on the pages of this book, that we would see you and that we would be able to make application to our own lives. We pray that you would come and you would do this in our midst, regardless of where we find ourselves this morning whether we in this moment are believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Father, we pray that you would drive your word home to our hearts, that we might experience and know Jesus more deeply. We pray in his name. Amen. Justo Gonzalez says, God's power and love are manifested not only in God's presence, but also in God's apparent absence. God's power and love are manifested not only in God's presence, which we know, we're familiar with that, but also in God's apparent absence. This is harder to know, and it's even harder to experience, that God is present to us even when he seems to apparently be absent. This is really where we left off at the end of chapter 1 of Esther last week, talking about God's mysterious Presence that even when it seems like God is hidden, even when it seems like He is absent, He actually is mysteriously present with us. Esther chapter 2 is a dark chapter. You might say, I thought chapter 1 was dark. Well, chapter 2 is even darker, so get ready. 
this book as a whole is pretty dark. And like I said, you, you began to see some of that last week. This chapter, chapter two, is a story of abduction and abuse. And before I, I begin reading the first few verses and we start talking about this, I just want to make this comment. The Bible does not romanticize the world in which we live. Now, that might surprise some of you. Because it might be the case that you actually are not all that familiar with the Bible. But based on what you've heard, uh, based on maybe things that uh, people have told you, um, or just conclusions that you have reached yourself without actually wrestling with Scripture, without actually reading it, you might just assume that the story of the Bible is a romanticized fairy tale. Well, once you get into it, you realize that uh, romanticism is not necessarily one of the agendas of the writers of the Bible. The Bible does not hold back from telling us about the ugly, even disturbing realities of life. The Bible is honest about the fact that we, we find ourselves caught in between, caught in between the glory of Eden and the renewal of all things. And we find ourselves in the midst of a mess, a world in which things do not happen the way that God intended, a world in which abduction and abuse takes place. The story of Scripture, even though it might be hard to accept, is true to the way things actually are in the real world. The glory and beauty of life, as well as the tragedy and ugliness of life, all here on the pages of Scripture. God is not afraid, and we should be so grateful and thankful for this, God is not afraid to tell us the true story of the world. But having said that, I want to return to the question that we kept asking last week. Where is God? As we focus in on the ugliness, the brokenness. Where is God? Okay, we might be able to accept this is true. I know it is. It's my experience. And it actually, in a weird kind of way, is encouraging to see that what is written on the pages of Scripture aligns with my experience. But here's the question. Where is God in the midst of this true story of the world? So Esther 2, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be invited to trace the hand of a God who is working behind the scenes, orchestrating the details of life, even when he seems hidden. Verse, starting with verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So we start off here in chapter 2 with... Um, a connection to chapter 1, after these things. And what is happening after the events of chapter 1? Well, the king is maybe having some time for reflection, for consideration. And it sure seems that he is possibly beginning to experience some regret. Now, I want to point something out. Between the events of chapter 1 and the events of chapter 2, it's not simply the next day, or the following week, four years have gone on in between. And let me tell you about what has happened in the span of these four years, because it's really important for the context of this chapter. The king has been humiliated. The king has been defeated. 
A larger Persian uh, army, military, went into Greece in order to conquer it, and it failed, even with a larger military. And so now you have the king defeated, humiliated, and feeling vulnerable. And we're brought into his vulnerability right away here in the first verse. He remembered Vashti, Vashti and what she had done. Now, often when this language, this, these specific words, he remembered Vashti, often when this language is used in the Old Testament, it's used of God in the context of remembering someone. And it indicates faithfulness and a determination to show mercy. So the king is feeling regret. It's one of those possibly, uh-oh, moments. What did I do? Now that things have calmed down, now that the war uh, has come to a halt, now that he's lonely and he has quiet, he's feeling remorse. He's feeling regret. He's lonely. Makes sense that he would want a companion, right? To share in this loneliness with him or maybe a companion to satisfy his sexual desires, to take his mind off of all of these emotions that he's feeling. He's experiencing regret. But he might be feeling foolish as well. Because the decree, so it's not as simple as this. The king is feeling remorse, he's feeling regret. So maybe he could say, let's undo what we did. Let's invite Vashti back into of the palace, she can become queen again, and we can resume life like nothing ever happened. But the edict that was made in chapter 1 is irrevocable. And the king, he has to save face. He can't go to his advisors and say, is there a way for us to revoke this? It's just not the path forward for him. And so his advisors, let's find out what they recommend to the king, beginning in verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So the king's young advisors, they have this plan. They sense that the king is feeling really vulnerable, and so they need to help out. So they recommend this plan to gather beautiful virgins from all throughout the provinces of the kingdom, bring them into Susa, into the king's harem. And Haggai, the king's eunuch, will have the job of supervising, being in charge of them. And it would begin this process that we find later on take, would take a year, a year preparation, and we'll, we'll get into that in a few moments. But through this whole process, we could say that this is a beauty contest of sorts. The next queen would be selected. And as you heard me read, um, the end of verse 4, the king, what's his response? This pleased the king. Well, of course it pleased the king because it serves him. It serves his power. And here's what else it does. I think that this brings the king to life again. It's like life is, new life is breathed into him. It saves him from further remorse, because how could he stand to actually do business with a guilty conscience? 
Couldn't have that, right? Couldn't have that because then he might to make, de- make decisions that would lessen his power and the power of those around him. And so this decision can distract the king from this guilty conscience that maybe he's beginning to experience. Distracts him from the ugly realities of his heart. You and I know what that's like. We know what it's like to latch on to things in life to distract us from the ugly realities of our heart, to help distract us from maybe a guilty conscience, from the remorse and regret that we might be feeling in life. Now the king can get on with pursuing pleasure and satisfying every desire that he might have. You notice a theme yet? We're only into the beginning of chapter 2, but do you notice a theme? Anytime the king's advisors suggest an idea or a plan, it seems to please the king because it's always about protecting the power of the king. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Remember the context here. Uh, We talked about this last week. The characters that we're focusing in on, particularly Mordecai and Esther, who we're about to meet, um, are Jewish And they are those, as we learn from these verses, who had been carried into exile when Babylon overtook Jerusalem. And so there are a couple things going on here in this time period in history. Um, With the Persians conquering uh, Babylon, an edict was made by King Cyrus for um, the Jews that wanted to, to return to their homeland, to return to Jerusalem, and with resources provided by the empire, they were empowered to begin rebuilding the city and the temple in particular. And so some of those Jewish exiles who were in Persia made the trip at two specific different times back to Jerusalem. But there were some who did not. And Mordecai and Esther would be an example of those who did not. And so Books like Nehemiah, Ezra, tell the story about those exiles who did return to Jerusalem and what they were doing and how God was fulfilling his promises to them. But what about the exiles who remained in Persia, in a foreign land, in a strange place? Was God still faithful to them? Was God still maintaining his covenant promises to them? What did it look like for them to be devoted to the God of their faith, the God of Israel, while they remained in exile? When we meet Mordecai in verse 5, the author of Esther is basically saying this to us. This guy is really, really important. This is a turning point in the story. Pay attention. Pay attention to this guy and what he does From this point on in the storyline, he's important. Verse 7, we learn this of Mordecai. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So now we are introduced to the one for whom this book is named, Esther. 
And we learn that Esther and Mordecai are cousins, that Esther was an orphan. She had neither father nor mother. And so Mordecai essentially adopted her as his own and took care of her and raised her. And the author here now with both of these characters is saying, pay attention, pay attention to these two characters. And the, the, the contrast is being made because up to this point, we have been in the palace of the king in Persia, a foreign place when it comes to the values of the God of Israel and his kingdom and what he desired for his people. There's a, a sharp and drastic contrast there. And as you've seen, even the first three verses, we are still in the palace of the king. It's very Persian in feel. And all the values, the self-centered and self-absorbed values of the king are still being displayed. But then we get to chapter 5 and the contrast is made. Yet there were these two, these two, these two Jews who find themselves in a strange and foreign land as exiles. And really, the intent of the author is for us to be on the edge of our seats wondering what's going to happen. How are these two characters going to factor prominently into the storyline as we move on? They are disconnected from home, Mordecai and Esther. They're in a foreign land, as we said, where there are foreign values in comparison to the values of Israel in their devotion to God. And as we said, Esther was an orphan raised by Mordecai. And we're given the detail, and this detail is going to be significant for the remainder of this chapter, that she was beautiful and pleasing to look at. And when you hear that line, you should say, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. Because remember, the plan of the young advisors given to the king, let's go look for young, beautiful virgins to bring back, and eventually you can select the one that you want to be queen. And here we learn this detail about Esther. This orphan girl who is in exile happens to be beautiful. Wrong place, wrong time for Esther. Mordecai and Esther, this, this contrast between them, their, their Jewish identities and their Persian identities it surfaces even in their names. Mordecai is actually a pagan name, and it most likely references Marduk. Marduk was one of the Babylonian gods. And Esther, we do learn her Jewish name, Hadassah, but we also learn her, well, Esther is not her, yes, Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name, which probably refers to Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. So even with their names and what's going on here, we, we have this tension, this dilemma, this conflict of, the Jew, of, of Jews being in exile. Who are they? What, what is their identity? What defines them more than anything else? This is, this is hard. This is a dilemma to uh, distinguish between the two. It's actually true for us as well. For those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, those who, because of the grace and mercy of Jesus by faith, have been brought into his kingdom, that is the kingdom that is to define us. The values of that kingdom are meant to define us more than the 
um, the values of the kingdoms of this world. And yet, particularly for us in our context, we also find ourselves as Westerners, as Americans, as Wilmingtonians or um, Newarkians or... I'm going to stop there. But we, 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 we can't separate our identity from the place in which we inhabit. And, and we're not meant to. We're not meant to completely. God has placed us, uh, you know, Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says this as he's preaching to the philosophers, that God has destined for us the place in which we live, the place in which we find ourselves. And so it's not um, unspiritual for us to have identities that are connected to the places in which we inhabit. But the values of Jesus' kingdom are to have a much greater influence on us than the values of these places or these kingdoms in which we live. And it's a dilemma, right? It can be hard to distinguish one from the other. Who are we? What's our ultimate identity? Where does our ultimate allegiance lie? I, I, I go through this just so that you can begin to maybe feel some of the tension that the Jews in Persia felt. And even as we try our best to put ourselves in their shoes, we, we still cannot. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So here's how this would work, this beauty contest, if you will. After a year of preparation, each woman would spend a night with the king. And the year of preparation was a process of beautifying, we're told, with um, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments. If you're not disturbed by all of this, you're not reading closely or you're just disengaged from the text right now. Because this is unbelievably disturbing, what was taking place here. The, woman, the women could take whatever they wanted into the king's bedroom on this night. And once the night was completed, uh, the woman would return to the king's harem, not the same harem of that seven, that selected group, but to a secondary harem, never to see the king again unless he called upon her. And she was not permitted to return to her family. She would enjoy luxury, yes, for the rest of her life, but she would do so in isolation. When it's Esther's turn, we're told that she takes nothing into the, the king except for what was advised by Haggai. Now, there's a temptation here for me to say that Esther was not trying to win this contest by taking the bare minimum into um, the king's bedroom that night. I don't know if that's the case, so I can't say that. And we're about to talk in a few moments about why it's really dangerous with the book of Esther in particular to, 
try to moralize characters and see um, what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to act in light of them. So we're not sure why exactly she takes the bare minimum into the bedroom of the king on her night. Verse 17, she wins. She's selected. The king selects her. The royal crown is set on her head. She becomes queen. A feast is given by the king to celebrate Esther. He also grants a tax break for the people and gives gifts generously. The king is happy once again. All right, here after um, kind of going through the storyline of this passage, I want to talk about two different things, human frailty and God's providence. Now the sermon's actually beginning, for, if you're wondering. I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But here are the two kind of application points or the two themes that I want to draw out of this storyline of Esther chapter 2, human frailty and God's providence. So let's begin with looking at this, these events through the lens of human frailty. As I've been saying, this chapter and the book of Esther as a whole is full of moral ambiguity. Like I said, the author of Esther does not give us commentary on the actions of the characters in this story. We're not, we're not told this action is moral, this action is immoral, and it's okay to be frustrated by that. I actually found myself frustrated a lot this week in preparation, wanting more details, wanting to be able to get into the, the minds and hearts of these characters to know what they were thinking and why they, they made certain decisions, but we don't get any of that. Why? Why is that the case? Did the author make a mistake? Uh, is it just a, a, an example of an author not giving as much detail as would have been beneficial? No. I believe that the level of detail that we're given in this book is intentional. It's intentional. The point of this book is not the people in this book. It's not to say that they're unimportant. They're, they're really important. I mean, and this, this applies to life in general as a whole. People are really important, but guess who is most important? God. This story is about God. Now, I know it's weird, it's strange, because God is not mentioned. He doesn't make an appearance. He's hidden. He seems absent. But that's the brilliance of the story. And we'll, be, we'll keep unpacking that as we go throughout this series. But there's a lot of moral ambiguity here, and we'll, we'll get into that precisely in, in a moment. But as we, we talked about, the, as we unpack this human frailty, I want to talk more about the situation in which Esther and Mordecai found themselves in. You know, if you're in a situation like that, and this was true going back, I mean, if you read the book of Jeremiah about the exiles in Babylon, there was this tension how do they live as exiles? And I would imagine that there were two real temptations. On the one hand, there would be a temptation to accommodate, to lose your, the, the, the distinctives of your faith, to lose their Jewish identity in particular for them, and to just blend in and look like and be like everyone else. That's the easiest path forward, right? You can avoid being mocked, you can avoid persecution. It's just convenient. 
On the other end of the spectrum might be isolation, that we are going to maintain the distinctives of our faith, we're going to maintain our Jewish identity, but we are going to completely isolate ourselves from the culture around us. What's interesting is that the prophet Jeremiah, in the 29th chapter of his book, he calls the people to a third way. Now, this was the people in Babylon before Persia overtook Babylon. But he calls the people to a different way, a, 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 another option, a third way. And he says, put down roots where you are. Seek the good of the city in which you find yourself. And the context there um, continues, but maintain the distinctives of your faith, essentially. If we're using the words of Jesus, we might say that Jeremiah's call is to be in the world, but not of the world. To be deeply planted and rooted in the places which, by God's sovereignty, he has put us. And there's a certain uh, uh, sense in which we can't help but to have our identities shaped by the places in which we live. And a lot of that is okay, but then a lot of it is not okay when it comes to the values by which we live. To be in the world, but not of the world. And as in the world, we have to be entrenched enough for Jeremiah that we're actually seeking the welfare of those around us. And so that just kind of gives you an idea of the dilemma, the tension that the exiles felt, similar to, in some ways to what we might even feel today. But I bring this up because I want to highlight this theme of human frailty. As we consider these two characters, Mordecai and Esther, the temptation is to hold them up as moral examples one way or another. So to say, this action by Mordecai was moral, this action by Mordecai was immoral, and so let's seek to do this action by Mordecai that was moral, but not the one that was immoral, that we would label as immoral. And then we do the same with Esther. We get ourselves into a lot of trouble if that's our approach to the book of Esther in particular, but to a degree, the Bible in general. Because first and foremost, the Bible is not about what we should do. Now, what we should do is important, not unimportant. But the Bible first and foremost is about what God does and has done and what is doing. In other words, God is always the main character of the Bible. Every story on every page of Scripture, God is the main character. He is the hero. And so, we need to be careful to hold up these characters and try to glean some life lessons from them. Now, there's a time and place for that. I'm not going to turn this into a whole lecture on biblical interpretation, but I just want you to hear that for now, that we need to be careful about moralizing these characters because that clearly is not the intent of the author of this book. If that was an important priority of the author, we would have been given more commentary. And so when it comes to Mordecai and Esther, I want you to be aware of their frailty. Because so many questions linger. Was Mordecai wrong? Was he sinning by telling Esther to not reveal her Jewish identity? What was going on in his mind? What were his reasons for giving her that counsel? We don't. No. See what I mean? It's frustrating 
It'd be really cool. It'd be really helpful to know exactly Mordecai's thought process and why he told Esther what he did. But we're not given that reason. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful to say, well, if you read the book of Daniel about a guy in exile, he seems to be much more courageous, much more resistant of the empire in which he finds himself in, much more devoted in his faith, and he seems to be willing to sacrifice even himself in order to make decisions that are courageous and might um, be seen as resistance in the eyes of the empire. That is Daniel's story. Don't make that Esther's story. We need to be careful because they're two different books. The commentary that's provided for us in these books is very different. Be careful to say Mordecai was sinning by telling Esther to not reveal her Jewish identity. And then when it comes to Esther, my goodness, this woman, I'll tell you what, she takes heat from both conservative and feminist interpreters alike. It was really disturbing and frustrating for me, like reading um, commentaries and doing research this week, because everybody wants to attack Esther. Those who are really conservative want to say that she, um, she should have made a more courageous decision and resisted going into uh, the king's bedroom in this way. She played into the system of um, sexism. And guess what? The feminist interpretation of Esther can often be almost the same. That Esther is not as strong as Vashti. And here we go, comparing two characters within the same book. The author does not intend for us to compare Esther to Vashti. Two different set of circumstances, even though they both end up as queen. And so I want to tell you this, that in glory someday, when you see Esther in the new heavens and the new earth, give her a big hug. <laughs> give her a big hug. And you know what? We don't need to give her a big hug necessarily because she is beaming in the love of Jesus currently. These characters are frail, just like we are frail. Think of the situation again of Mordecai and Esther. Esther, an orphan girl, she did not ask to be orphaned. We don't know what happened to her father and mother. Were they killed? Did they die? Did they forsake her? We, we don't know any of the details. But she didn't ask for that plight in life. And Mordecai does a courageous thing by raising her and doing, we would uh, imagine, the best that he could. And based on that, we would have to imagine that his counsel to her to not reveal her Jewish identity had her best interest in mind. Whatever, you know... <laughs> At the end of the day, we may say it was right or wrong. He's frail. He's doing the best that he can. And it seems like he has Esther's best interest in mind because we're told at the end of verse 11 that every day Mordecai would go check on her to see if everything was okay. And they're exiles living in a foreign land. We have to allow ourselves to feel and to consider the frailty of their situations. Now, that does not diminish human responsibility. It, it does not diminish um, the fact that we sometimes make sinful decisions and our responses to things in life are not uh, glorifying to God or loving toward our neighbor. But we have to just be aware of the frailty of these characters and not to try to pretend and think, oh, well, if I were in that situation as Mordecai, I would have told her to tell the truth. Would you have? 
And would that have actually been best? We don't know. The commentary is not provided. I told you it's frustrating. Esther's situation was not voluntary. So Esther didn't ask to be an orphan. Esther finds herself exiled, being raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she happens to be beautiful. Remember what I said earlier. Esther is in the wrong place at the wrong time because this brilliant idea of this twisted and distorted beauty contest has just been established by the king and his young advisors. Esther has already known tragedy and loss. This was not an open contest to which Esther applied. All right? was not a beauty contest in which Esther said, I want to be queen, where can I apply? The, the, the Hebrew in the text is actually very careful to show that she was passive in all of this. Verse 8, many young women were gathered in Susa. Esther also was taken into the king's palace. And that may be another question that you had. Well, where was Mordecai? Did he just allow this to happen? Well, we're not given those details, but we have these passive verbs. These young women were gathered. Esther was taken. As far as we can understand from the text, they didn't have a say in the matter. Esther was abducted. Some say Esther did nothing wrong. Others say Esther did some wrong. Specifically, she used sex to become queen. I will say this, Esther was manipulated and abused. And we need to grieve that part of the story. Because she found herself in the midst of an evil, wicked scheme of the king. I mean, just the concept of the plan is evil and wicked. But then the details of it, the year of preparation, and for those of who weren't selected, they were not allowed to go back home. but they were isolated for the rest of their lives. This is an evil and wicked scheme. And Esther finds herself in the midst of it. And this is important to point out because examples of this continue today. And the question is precisely this. Um, at, at what point in our lives are we victim and are we responsible and there's actually a lot of heated discussion about this in our culture in general today. And I, I, I think that the book of Esther actually speaks really meaningfully into this. First of all, it says, be careful. Be careful to moralize. You need to understand the circumstances of people. And so the answer, big picture to that question is yes. As people, we are sinners. We're responsible for our actions. But as people living in a fallen world, we are also victims, those who are sinned against. As uh, David Strain, a pastor in uh, Presbyterian Church of America, our denomination in Mississippi says of this text, he says, we encounter a world in which women are often objectified and made victims, where men can be predatory and where at least for some fear is often more powerful than faith. And I, I think that last line captures it so well. Fear can often be more powerful than faith. And we need to be careful to say, 
you must have the level of faith of this person without regard to their personal stories and circumstances. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? Is he he's just seemingly allowing this to unfold. You know, you could imagine Esther in the king's palace that night, possibly, or at some point in the process, crying out to God, wondering, are you really going to allow this to happen? Where are you? Let's talk about God's providence as we close. Karen Jobes uh, wrote a commentary that I referred to a couple times last week on the book of Esther, says this about providence. The book of Esther is perhaps the most striking biblical statement of what systematic theologians call the providence of God. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the invention, intervention of the miraculous. You got that? Got it memorized? What she's saying is this, that even when God seems hidden, even when it seems that he is absent, he is working in the ordinary to fulfill his ultimate purposes. There are two, potential, or two providential developments in the storyline of chapter 2 um, that I want to point out. One, the fact that Esther becomes queen. Now, how she got there, we, we've already gone through that. A brutal story of abduction and abuse. A story of sin, evil, corruption, wickedness. But she becomes queen. And the fact that she is queen is going to be significant for how God is going to unfold his purposes in the rest of the story. Mordecai, actually, we, we stopped reading through the, the text. I stopped at verse 18. Um, verses 19 through 23. We have a scene here in which Mordecai, um, I'll summarize it for you, overhears a, a plot to do harm against the king from two of the king's um, uh, officials or, or eunuchs. And so Mordecai brings this to the attention of Esther. And in verse 23, it says that the affair was investigated and found to be so, and the men were hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai, coincidentally, just happens to be present at the city's gate as he overhears this conversation about a plot to bring harm to the king. God had him in this moment at the right place at the right time. And so this comes back to the king. They investigate it. It turns out to be true, and these two guys are hanged. That's maybe a, we'll leave that to uh, the next time we preach through Esther. Maybe never. But Mordecai foils the plot against the king. Esther becomes queen. Remember how we said multiple times about Esther, at least, wrong place, wrong time. Well, now a reversal is beginning to happen. Right place at the exact right time. You know, I, I, I wonder often in my own life why certain things unfold the way that they do. Many of you know some of my story. I, I've shared it in the context of intro classes before. But uh, my parents were divorced when I was young. My mom um, ended up in two marriages after that, both 
uh, marked by uh, physical abuse in, in the one case and alcohol abuse in both. And I remember as a kid, often internally screaming out the question, why? God, where are you? This is happening right now. And I've asked you to help. I've asked you to show yourself, and you haven't. Where are you? You know what? I, I don't know where God was exactly. I completely believe that he was, he was there. But in that moment, he seemed very absent, very hidden. But now looking back, I can say without a doubt that God was mysteriously present. And many of you need to hear this this morning because of your personal stories. And it could be that your personal, the, the tragedies, events in your, your, your life actually are an obstacle for you right now when it comes to real, meaningful, deep faith in God and his purposes. I mean, for some of you, it could just simply be you, you don't currently have faith because you can't quite bring yourself to believe in a God who has allowed these things to happen. And then for others of you, who do believe, maybe the uh, events that have transpired in your life actually keep you from really engaging with God at a deep emotional level. And maybe you keep it intellectual, and even there you don't go too far. But our, our personal stories shape us, whether they be for good or for bad. And what you need to hear this morning is that God is aware of our human frailty. God was fully aware of Esther's situation, of Mordecai's situation. And could there have been ways in which they should have, could have acted differently, made different decisions? Sure, of course, that's true for all of us. But who is the main character of the story? Who is the hero of the story? It is God. And God is mysteriously present in the lives of these two individuals and he's mysteriously present in our life today and has been throughout our lives. His guiding hand is present. Now, what makes faith so difficult in the moment is that we can't see what lies ahead. We can only see our, the current scene in the story, right? And sometimes even then, it's so blurry, it's so confusing, it's so disturbing that we can't even see the fullness of that particular scene. And so that's what makes faith hard is that we can only see what we see, right? And that's why faith is about trust. Martin Luther King Jr. said um, that faith is basically taking the first step even when we can't see the whole staircase. I think that's the essence of faith. Taking the first step even when we can't see the whole staircase. Now, let me conclude with this. If you have experienced abuse, if you have been sinned against, if you have been harmed in deep and disturbing ways, how can you trust this God? Well, I want to draw your attention to a time when God revealed himself but was still, many, still hidden to many, even those who stood in front of him. And that is the time in which God came in the person of Jesus Christ and was willing to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And so Jesus, stripped and naked, humiliated, 
for all to see in front of the public. And he cries out this statement that I uh, referred to last week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a statement that Esther would have likely cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a statement that a different in different scenes in my life, I have cried out. But here is the gift of the Christian faith. We want answers. We want to know why. And we don't get those answers, as frustrating as it might be. But what we get is God's personal presence, which is actually better than any intellectual answers that we might receive. We get God's personal presence in the form of Jesus Christ, We get a God who himself knows what it's like to experience the brutality, the abuse, the wickedness and corruption of this world. A God who himself, as strange and as mind-blowing as it seems, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This God can be trusted because he has subjected himself to the same things that we experience in life in a fallen world. And so here in Esther and in our own lives, there's this mysterious intersection of God's providence and human responsibility. And as you look back on your life, you might be able to identify all of the ways in which you've been sinned against, but then you can identify the ways in which you've sinned against others and the ways in which you have sinned against God. Here's the good news. That when you bring that all to the feet of Jesus at the cross, and you place your trust, not your intellectual ascension, but your, your trust, your faith, the core of who you are, when you place that at the foot of the cross in the person of Jesus, trusting his work on your behalf, Jesus absorbs that on your behalf. That's what was happening on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was absorbing your sin and your suffering upon himself. He can be trusted because he loves you so much he did that for you. Bring your sin and your suffering to Jesus. The author of Esther invites us to trace God's hand, who's working behind the scenes, orchestrating the details of life, even when he seems hidden. Let's pray. God, you are both hidden and present at the same time. We're so thankful that you understand and acknowledge our human frailty. And you understand that even from an emotional level, from a personal level, because you were willing to take on human flesh. We pray that in the difficult scenes of our lives in which we can't connect the dots, in which we can't make sense of what is happening, we pray that you would mysteriously and especially be present to us. We pray that you would reveal your guiding hand to us as you see fit. And we pray um, for our faith, that you would grant us faith, that you would give us a deep and abiding trust, 
that we might place our trust in you, that we might believe that you are good and that you actually are working behind the scenes, orchestrating your purposes. Father, you are good. We believe, but help our unbelief. We thank you for Jesus, the one who covers our frailty, who covers our sin, who covers the sins of others who have committed against us. We bring all of this to you at the foot of the cross. Pray that you would redeem us as you promise. It's in your name that we pray, amen.